Hey, Devils fans, On the Line is a weekly auction series featuring unique Prudential Center and Devils items. Proceeds from the On the Line weekly auction series will benefit the Devils Care Foundation to help support its goal of providing life-changing opportunities for young people who live and play in New Jersey's most challenged neighborhoods. With a focus on community outreach, food assistance, and educational development. To bid on this week's item, visit NewJerseyDevils.com slash on the line. Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to Speak of the Devils, our, well, basically weekly podcast. It's been received well by you fans, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. Joined today by Chris Westcott. Uh, and Chris, I have just loved, whether it's a current devil or in this case, we'll be speaking with a former devil, just diving in deeper. This format's awesome to give space and time for stories to be told. My favorite, especially when we have an alumni on, uh, is getting the stories that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You know, like those the, the locker room stories, the bench stories, the interactions between players. That's my favorite part of this podcast, and I, and I, I love being a part of it. Well, today we are going to speak with a former New Jersey Devil player who wore the sweater so well, uh, won two Stanley Cups playing for the Devils, and played in a style. And we'll discuss a little bit with him about that style. He was kind of in your face, not the biggest guy. He wasn't Ken Danico or Scott Stevens. He wasn't a big, hulking human being like a Bobby Holik. But John Madden gave you everything on every shift all the time. And he was a bug. Let's face it. He was, the, <laughs> he was like a Brad Marchand, not as much of a scorer, but defensive. He was in your face. He would talk to you after the whistle blew, talk to you before a faceoff, talk to you from the bench. He got under your skin in the very best way and was just an awesome devil. He's the kind of player that if he's not on your team, you hate to play against him. But if he's on your team, you absolutely love him. And there's a reason why he's called Mad Dog. I guess we're going to have to ask him about that nickname. But uh, I think it might have to do with the way he played. You know, there's a saying I like, which is find work, which is like whether that's uh, be a good defensive player, whether that's uh, go in front of the net and be a good net front presence, whether that's being good at the back check or real quick on the forecheck. And, and he was a guy that found work. And, I, and, and that's just how I remember him as a player. And anyone who makes it to the National Hockey League clearly has a skill set that's higher than the average person. But nothing was handed to John. He wasn't so highly touted in junior that he was a can't-miss prospect. He went to college, and yes, he was part of a national championship team at the University of Michigan. But there were some others who, garnered, despite the fact that he set a college record for shorthanded goals in a career. But there were others on that team who got a little more attention. It was just a great Marty Turco was on that club, Mike Knubel, Brendan Morrison. I mean, they had some fabulous players. And John was an integral part, but maybe not the guy. And then he's not drafted, and he has to come in as a free agent. And he just, yeah, he found work. He, he worked for everything he got and took nothing for granted. He was just so much fun to see. Guys like that are the best stories because they're not touted. They don't get anything handed to them. They show up for work and they're usually the best teammates too. There's a reason why they stick around. And there's a reason why this guy won multiple cups and on multiple teams. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with him. 
And so at this moment, let's bring in our guest. He has found a new home in the state of Kentucky. He joins us from the South. Let's welcome in and find out a little bit about that nickname, John Madden. We are very pleased to be joined by John Madden, a longtime devil, won two Stanley Cup championships while playing for New Jersey, won a third after his time with the Devils was over while playing for Chicago. And John, it's awfully good to see you today. Do you know you scored the last goal? I believe it was the last goal at the Meadowlands. I didn't know that. Yeah, I believe you were. I think you scored two that day. Uh, Devils lost to Ottawa in the playoffs, but that was it. The last, uh, the last goal scored there. So you have a piece of Devils history in many ways. <laughs> the Meadowlands, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I've known you a long time, but I'm not sure I ever knew the story on how you got the nickname Mad Dog. So who laid that nickname on you? How did it come about, John Mad Dog Madden? I think, um, if I remember correctly, that was my dad's nickname um, growing up. And uh, he earned it, I'll tell you that. He earned it. Uh, You know, I've been to many, many hockey games of his as a kid, and we'd only stay for half the game when he was playing most of the times because he'd get thrown out or lose his temper. or something like that so they gave him the name mad dog and then it kind of just fell to me a little bit and then i think it kind of stuck with me a little bit as well for personality wise i'm sure if you talk to any of my ex-teammates they'll say yeah he's mad or he's moody or whatever but at the same time it stuck with me and i i kind of enjoyed it i kind of take a little bit of my dad into a hockey game where you got that little anger a little chip on your shoulder and play with an edge so that's where it came from so it was with you at Michigan, and then you brought it with you to the Devils. See, I don't remember that. I thought somehow it came up along the way. Because of the traits that you recognize, I mean, talk about dog on a bone. That would describe the way you play. Exactly. I, I think a few of the guys just changed it to dog after a while. Um, I lost a mat. I know like a Colin White or, or Jamie Langenbrunner or uh, Marty Verdeur would always just call me dog. And uh, with two Gs, by the way, two Gs. Um, so it came about. But it's a funny story r- real quick. Uh, we're from Ireland, and we were in Disney one day, speaking of the Mad Dog name, and we went into this place where they can make your Irish flag and tell you what your name really means, and uh, Mada comes from the word Mad Dog in Ireland, so it actually fits pretty good when I found out, and this was years later, so um, it was kind of cool. Perfect. I mean, Maddie kind of talked about the way that you played, and obviously, you're uh, known for your defensive style play. I want to know where that came from because when you played for Barry, you were offensively dynamic. So I'm wondering when uh, you decided to make that switch and really hone in on the defensive side of your play. Well, it's a pretty interesting story. So obviously you saw my career in Barry and put up a bunch of points, uh, college as well, and then uh, Albany as well. I think I almost had 100 points one year. But it came to me when 1998, 99 maybe. Um, you know, Lou just said, hey, if you're going to play with our team, you're going to have to pick up your defensive part of your game, which my dad instilled in me. He didn't like when I got scored on, and he always told me to take care of the defensive zone. Um, and as a kid, you just want to score goals. Uh, I go through with my son all the time. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of knew what I was doing, but I always just wanted to score goals and cheat on offense and stuff like that. But basically it came to me, and they, they said, if you want to play, it's fourth-line checking role, and you got to be a defensive responsible guy. And I just jumped at the chance and, you know, picked up as much as I could from like a guy like Larry Robinson or Bobby Carpenter or Bobby Holik, whoever I was playing with, just kept watching these guys play the defensive side of the puck. And, um, you know, 
sooner or later, it just became my niche and I enjoyed it and loved it. And uh, I was able to make a career out of it. It seems well, like that would be good advice for any young player coming into the NHL. If you want a role, I mean, once you find a role, stick with it and be good at it. And I think that you obviously did that. I, I did want to, you mentioned your son. I wanted to talk to you about him as well. He just signed his first NHL contract back in March. I, I want to know what that moment was like for you. Um, I was excited. Uh, I, I lived a little bit through Ty. He wasn't drafted. He was drafted. Uh, and then he signed an NHL deal after his second year. I had to go all four and try to find somewhere to play. So um, it's exciting. I, I guess if I could go back a little bit and tell you, Ty was always a really small kid and slight. And so there was a lot of, you know, adversity he had to go through. So it wasn't just handed to him. Um, he fought through it and finally grew. As I told him, I said, sorry, you got a bad gene. We don't grow until we're 17, 18. <laughs> so now he's six feet, 170 pounds. Now he put some weight on. So, uh, told him a little common in his early twenties, this is the way we were built and, or I was built anyway. So, you know, it, it, it means a lot to me, but that day he got drafted. Uh, I felt like I got drafted. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a wonderful feeling uh, for any parent to see their child succeed. And, and Tyler, of course, is on his way now after leaving Northeastern and signing that contract in March. You have another child. What's Reese up to? Reese jumps horses. Uh, she's into jumpers. Um, that's one, one of the reasons why we're in Kentucky. That's one of the reasons why we stayed in Florida as long as we were. It's a big... They have Wellington, which is the big uh, WAF equestrian area. And then now here in Kentucky, um, there's horses everywhere. And she's at a nice uh, farm called Spy Coast Farm. So right. she goes every day and jumps six, seven, eight, nine horses, depending on how many they need her to ride. So, uh, hey, she's up at 6.30 in the morning and gone till four. And she loves it. So uh, who joined us there? What's uh, what's the dog's name? This is Charlie. The ball took Charlie. Tell you what, Maddie, it's a it's a it's a string of dogs. I was going to say all the time we have exactly we have dogs joining us. It's also it's awesome. Come on, Charlie! Oh, look at that! Knocking down some sticks in the background. I love dogs. I got his ball, so he's he's sticking by my feet right now. All right. So, what kind of a dog is he? How long you had him? Oh, that's Charlie. We've had him four years, I think, now. He's a uh, white cream golden. And Very cool. Yeah. He's usually bulk. He already ate, so now we usually go out and play ball in the backyard for a little bit. So he's like, this is bugging him right now that I'm sitting down. <laughs> Mad hey, dog's dog. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Charlie, you got to wait a little longer. We got uh, we got your uh, your dad with us on, on the show for a little bit. Um, when, you, when you were in Florida and your daughter was involved in equestrian, I guess she's a little younger than Bobby Holik's daughter, but she was very and is very heavily involved in the question. Did your, did your paths cross it all down there on that circuit? Uh, they never did, um, but they kind of are now since the reunion. Bobby and I didn't realize that uh, we were in some same places like Akron, um, Carolina, and then he goes to Florida, and then he, you know, he has a place in uh, Cal, uh, I think it is, Florida, but he wants to move to Kentucky now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so he, we, we've been talking quite a bit since then, and I've been kind of giving the lay of the land and, you know, of uh, where to go. He spent some time here, some summers here, because they have a huge horse show here in Kentucky. So we we're kind of on the phone a little bit, maybe, you know, every couple of weeks, just checking in on each other and seeing how the horses are doing. And, uh, 
you know, we didn't keep that much in touch um, after we, you know, separated in terms of our playing careers or he retired and then I retired, but uh, we're back at it now. So um, I love talking to him. Oh, Reese obviously has a great hobby and, and, and enjoys doing the horses. What, what are you up to? What, what kind of hobbies do you like to do uh, right now during the off season when hockey's not really going on except for the playoffs, obviously, but what are you up to right now? Uh, I play a lot of golf. I'm, I'm like, I'm like Maddie there where I would love to throw my <laughs> clubs and snap them in half, but uh, <laughs> I play a lot of golf. Um, in fact, I was just making a tea time right before for my wife and I tomorrow morning to go play a quick nine. And I usually try to play quick nine before I have my little money match in the afternoon. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I play a lot of golf right now. Um, there are a few guys here, believe it or not, from uh, Canada that I've ran into playing golf. And uh, they have a league Wednesday and Sunday nights that they're trying to talk me to get into playing. So I think I'll give it a go again and just have some fun. I like it. I like it. I love talking about golf. There's no no doubt about that. So I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned your dad and his playing. Uh, and I know sometimes we make too much of it, but the truth of the matter is you grew up in a tough part of Toronto, didn't you? It was, you know, Parma court, I guess it was called, right? What kind of influence did that have on you along with the influence of your parents? Of course. I think the biggest thing I took from growing up where I did and all the guys would hang out together and we didn't, we didn't have TV or internet or when I shouldn't say TV, but we didn't really have the social media that you have now to see how the rest of the world's living. We just went out every day and played a different sport, whether it was basketball, football, baseball, hockey, obviously, but that was kind of our thing. We would go to school and come home and play a sport. I just didn't know that I, that I was growing up, differently than everybody else. It just kind of felt the same. I don't, I'm not sure. I think in, when I got older, maybe 12 or 13 and hockey started becoming expensive and travel and all that, then I was like, Whoa, you know, cause we couldn't afford it. Um, and we figured a way around to get some certain places enough, enough to get done. But I don't know. It was just, it was, it was different neighborhood, but I just didn't know any better. Um, you know, until I moved to Barry, I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. I didn't realize that, uh, I remember driving it through Barry in the wintertime and I saw those little shanties out on the ice on uh, Lake Simcoe. I thought those were really underpaid housing at the time. That's how naive I was. And my dad's like, those are ice huts. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like I didn't know. So I know that sounds really strange, but when you live in one small area and you don't really get to move around or travel. So moving to Barry was an eye open experience for me. And, and then obviously going off to college in the U S was, Really, I mean, I'd only been to the U.S. once in Boston, um, and I was sick the entire time, so I didn't leave my hotel room. I didn't even get to play. So it was just, uh, it was just a big experience for me. So I have no regrets, and uh, I loved every minute of it when, where, I, where I grew up. I have some great friends I still keep in touch with there, um, and they're all doing good. So, uh, you know, no regrets, and it was, it was, it was fun. I'm wondering, uh, as you moved along in your hockey career, in the younger years, who sticks out in your mind as a big influence in helping you keep going and working at it until eventually you were able to make a career out of hockey? I, I have two guys um, coaching in Barry. His name's Al Overton and um, Jim Burke was the other guy. Um, they were both coaches there. And we had our um, Barry Colt reunion a few years ago, um, maybe two, three years ago now. Um, we won the uh, Sutherland Cup. I didn't get to make it. But um, I was at the combine with my son, 
But at the same time, I got to talk to him through emails or FaceTime or whatever. And I just remember Al giving me this John Wooden quote because I did have a little bit of a temper on me and I wasn't very disciplined in a lot of areas. <laughs> um, but the quote was basically a player um, must practice self-discipline if he's reached individual stardom and team success. And I remember thanking him for it. Um, and I'd always have it in my wallet. And it kind of you know got me on that path to to being a better not only person but also a better hockey player and a better teammate. It's crazy how you know people you meet along the way just influence you so much. I, I'm wondering again, this, this is a similar question, but teammates can have that effect on you as well. And I'm wondering in your 10 years with the New Jersey Devils, is there a devil that really left their mark on you in your career? Absolutely. I think um I think Bobby Holik was one of the guys that uh, I would just, he just went about his business and, and he, and he was always prepared. And I, I can't remember him ever having a bad hockey game um, at any, at any time. So I just kind of watched him and, you know, he, he found ways to make himself important during the game. Um, maybe he wasn't scoring, but he, he'd hit somebody or he'd, he'd get involved or he'd win big face-offs. Um, and he'd always pump a teammate up. And I mean, there was a lot of guys like that. Um, you know, obviously Scott Stevens has his own, his own thing where, you know, you watch him and you're just like, this guy's possessed and ready to go at all times. So I kind of took a lot from those guys. Um, you know, when Jamie Langerbeer became our captain, I really enjoyed him. Um, the way he was able to communicate with all the teammates, you know, there was no clicks, there was no nothing. It was all together. So I really enjoyed, you know, watching him be a captain. I know you didn't mention his name, but Devils fans view you and Jay Pandolfo as attached at the hip because you had done so much great work together on the penalty kill and with just such a force. Shorthanded goals were, I won't say the norm because they're not easy to come by, but they were expected. Uh, the opponents were fearful when you guys were out there, particularly you, John. You made a you made a habit of scoring the timely shorthanded goal, and and you have you know you said it college record I mean it just it was an amazing ability that you brought to the ice night in and night out but what made you and Pando click as penalty killing forwards well you mentioned it before you talk about guys who made a career out of being good defensively Jay Pandolfo in 1996 I think that was his last year um, I always remind Jay of this um that we beat him out of the NCAAs and he had like 38 goals that year, which was unheard of in college hockey. And that could be off by the numbers, but he was leading the country in goals in college hockey. And you fast forward maybe three, four years later, and we're both on the check-in line for the New Jersey Devils. So it was kind of ironic in a way. And the, uh, the, the, the saying would always go, if, if I didn't see Panda when he was wide open, you know, the boys would be like, hey, he shut you down in 1996 and he's still shutting you down. <laughs> so it, was a, it was an ongoing story. And, but I think that's just it. I think we loved our role regardless of, you know, not being goal scorers. We just loved what we did. Um, we talked so much, like between shifts, we talked. And we talk away from the, the game or at dinner, we're talking about killing penalties against, say, a guy like Stamkos or Ovechkin. You're like, you know, hey, you – you take his side for the one timer all night or whether it's Weber or, you know, there's so many different guys, but we'd always have communication. I think that was the biggest point was that we would talk hockey a lot. Well, and that brings me back to a point that you raised earlier about conversation you had with Lou about, Hey, you got to pay attention now to the defensive side and you go from being a scorer 
to a checker and you establish a great NHL career in that role. And as we mentioned, three champions, three cups have your name inscribed on them or three seasons uh, that you played in your names on the cup three times. Anyway, what is that like when you are a scorer, when you believe you have offensive ability and you think that's going to carry you? And then somebody comes to you and says, kid, this is the way it's going to be. Is it hard to hear that message? Is it hard to adjust? Or do you just say, okay, Lou, that's how you see it. That's what I'm going to do. Because Jay obviously went through the same thing. Uh, Ken Danico says, you know, until he got to the Devils, he was a big-time scorer in juniors too. Um, so what's, what, what's that like for a player to hear that? How difficult is it? What's the transition like? Well, I think having, um, <clears throat> excuse me, coached in uh, Cleveland, American Hockey League, you see a lot of that. All the kids that get drafted, they, they, they put up points in their respective leagues. Right? We can go right through any roster right now and go, when he was in junior, he had 80 points in 45 games. Or you can get a number there and go, wow. But there's only so many Connor McDavid's, Sidney Crosby's, Patrick Iliash's, Zach Parise's, where there's only so many of them on a team. So you got to find your niche. And to go back to your original question, I think for me, it was easy. It was real easy because my goal was to make the NHL. I never really had this thing saying, hey, I'm going to be the Doug Gilmore of the NHL, who is my favorite player, or Steve Eiserman. I mean, that's great and all, but my goal is to make the NHL. And if they said this is my role, that was easy for me to accept. And I enjoyed it. I, was, I made the NHL. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and it obviously helps that you play for the Devils at the time that we did, where you had a chance to win a cup every year. And everybody knew it was, it was uh, you know, cup or bust every year. And that's the way we looked at it. So there was so many things that went into it, I guess, but it was a very, 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 very easy transition for me, especially because I was coached by John Conniff in, in, in the American hockey league where he had details on the, on the defensive side. So it wasn't like overnight, he just changed my game. It, it was coming from his tutelage and, you know, red Jenner and another guy that was there was always on me about the, you know, away from the puck play. So it was always there. Maybe I just didn't want to do it all the time because I didn't have to. Um, but as soon as I had to, that's what was my focus. So for me, it was easy. Well, Selkie Trophy winner, runner-up several times, uh, a finalist for that trophy. So it paid off in spades. You took the lessons well. But we have to talk offense. The game against Pittsburgh, October 29th, 2000. Chris, <laughs> the Devils win 9 nothing. John scores four goals. Randy McKay scores four goals. Honestly, I don't know what the odds would have been that those would have been the guys to score eight of the nine goals. <laughs> what an unbelievable game that was. What do you remember? Take us back. It's been a while now. Take us back to that game. What do you remember about it? Well, I'll preface a story because usually when you go into um, Pittsburgh and your task is to shut down a Jagger or Mary Lemieux or whoever was playing at the time, you know, I remember high five and Jay Pandolfo after one game and we were only minus two. And I was like, yeah, we did it. We won the game three, two. And I was like, that, that would be an award. You know, that would be an achievement. If you went in there and won the game three, two, and you're only minus two and you're on every shift with those guys. So that's going in there thinking about scoring nine goals was not even in our repertoire of what we're thinking. We're thinking, all right, how are we going to shut these guys down and play a normal devil's hockey game of two, one, three, two, you know, yeah, let's get out of here. Um, so it was crazy. The one thing I do remember is that I did get an assist in the game. So I had four goals, one assist and Randy got first star. I was a little upset about that. 
So, you know, those are, those are kind of the things I, I, I do remember I had a two on one with uh, Nemchinov and I went to pass the puck across to him and it went off their defender skate right in the net for one of the goals. So I, I it was pretty lucky that night as well. It, it was an unbelievable game and, and one that lives in, in devil's lore. So what did you say to Randy after he's voted the number one star? Like, dude, I had five points, man. Come on. I had the apple with the four goals. I think he, I, I probably said something to him. I can't. I, I would think you probably did. Oh yeah, for sure. I did. I was like, how did I get second star? He got first. Maybe I said that to him or maybe we we're on the plane or whatever. And Randy's like, who cares? We both scored four goals. Or one. <laughs> Good point, Randy. Good point. You know, Maddie, I, I enjoy these stories so much. And, you know, when we had Scott Gomez on the podcast and he just opened up about these teams and how tight they were and a lot of fun stories, I like asking, there's always funny moments like what we just talked about that will stick with you for the rest of your life. I'm just wondering, is there a moment in the locker room or on the ice at practice or in the middle of a game where you would just always look back on that and just crack up laughing? Uh, my, my favorite stories are about Ken Danico and <laughs> I have a couple I'll share with you. Um, I was always amazed at his energy and the way he, um, worked our room and talked and before the games, he'd be rocking back and forth. Like, like he was going into a heavyweight fight and he was all excited. And then somehow he got this routine where Daniel's a lefty right before we'd go out, I'd stand up and he'd come over. He's like, ready Mads? And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. And he'd throw about 30 lefts that were coming this close to my nose and I could feel the wind on them. And I remember uh, Colin White goes, you know, one day you're not going to play. He's actually going to miss and knock you out. And he'd just be rifling them like this close to my face. Like, yeah, let's go. And I'd be like, well, it gets them going, gets me going. Cause I'm seeing this fist come close to my face. So uh, we stayed with it for quite a while. And I just get a chuckle out of, out of him every time. There's a couple other stories. I remember, uh, one of the reporters were asking him, it was a questionnaire where people write in and they're supposed to ask some questions. And they said, Daniel, what do you do if uh, a player goes wide and takes you wide? And Daniel's response was, that would never happen. Never. <laughs> <laughs> they'd, be the, they'd be in the 13th row. You know, and he was like, wait, it, it, uh, it's crazy. My other story is I remember Dano scoring a goal getting an assist, I believe, and, and he fought somebody on the other team. And I remember him coming by the bench, and he's like, what else do you guys want me to do? I'm goal, <laughs> and I'm fighting their toughest guys. Is there anything else you guys want me to do tonight? And just little comments like that. And he always – I don't know if you guys ever remember – well, I don't know if some of you guys are young, but, Matt, you remember this. It was on Q107 in Toronto, the champ. Remember, like, ever since mm-hmm. I was the champ. He always, the voice and the way he did things always remind me of that. So – I just got a kick out of him. He always made me laugh, and he was always uh, someone who would, uh, when things were really intense, he'd always have a way of, like, relaxing everybody and reminding, hey, it's just a hockey game. We're here to have fun as well. I loved him on the 2003 reunion, Matty. You were getting him going, and he lit up the cigar and called himself an old fart. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, Dano's a classic, man. If you've been in his presence for any amount of time, and back in the day, it was a different time, that's for sure. But he was uh, just what a great guy and a character. And people rallied around him and just uh, a giving guy. So the no. Devils are lucky to have had him all those years. Another quick story. I just remember, you know, it was my first year and Daniel snapped a stick over someone's back and, and in front of the net, clearing someone out. And he gets called for cross-checking. And I remember him going to the box and he was arguing. And I was thinking to myself, huh, 
he's arguing snapping a stick over someone's back, which was kind of the norm back then, I guess, you know, you, you could have went either way. And he just, the ref's like, you snap a stick over his back, Daniel. And he was like, you can't give me a penalty for being the strongest man on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing in the rule book. And he went in there and I was like, Oh, like, I'm cracking up. And it was just, just dying laughing at the things he would come out of his mouth. And you just, you just made it real fun to be around him. Oh my goodness. To be a fly on the wall or to be on that bench with some of those teams and some of those characters, whether it's Dano, whether it's yourself, whether it's Bobby Holy, whether it's Scotty Gomez. I mean, that doesn't, I don't know. Does that exist in hockey today? That kind of collection of characters, but they were devoted to the goal, which was to win. And that, and I'm not putting down whoever comes away with the championship this year. I, I just, I just think we've ratcheted it down a little bit. I'm not sure that's for the best, but. I, I think there's still some characters on there. I just, I wish I could be in the dress room. That's the one thing I miss the most is being in the dress room, being around the guys. Um, obviously I love winning, but at the same time, it's, it's the boys being around them, having fun and playing a kid's hockey game with a bunch of other guys that enjoy just as much as you do. So I, I think it still exists. I just don't know to what extent I haven't been a, in an NHL dressing room in a while and been around guys. So, um, I'm sure it's still there. Can we go back to that first championship year devils for, for that group? 2000 is the second for the devils, but the first that, that you're a part of. Yeah, there were the veteran guys. Marty was there, and Dan was there, and Stevens was there, and Niedermeyer was there, and, and we could go through the veteran guys. But there were an awful lot of young faces that came up uh, who either got a little taste a year or so before, but were really making their mark in that year. And, and I would count you in that category. Scotty Gomez, obviously. Brian Rafalski. Uh, Colin White, who came up later. What was it like to be a young guy in that veteran room knowing that despite winning in 95, they had not had success. What was the mixture like? And, and how did you respond as personally as one of those young guys looking around and trying to take in what we got here and what I can do to help? It's kind of weird. And I always go back to, I've been asked this question before. Um, maybe after the first month of kind of proving yourself, um, you know, in October, a little bit in November, something changed where, I didn't feel like a rookie anymore and I wasn't treated as a rookie anymore. Um, I had a job to do and I was held accountable and they treated me the same way they would treat someone that's been there six, seven years or, you know, vice versa. There was never any of that rookie feeling um, after a certain maybe month and a half. It was just like, you're part of the team and you're going to be part of this, you know, you're going to be a cog in the wheel, so to speak for us to win. And that's the way, you know, especially a guy like Scott Stevens, I remember the first time after a penalty kill, he came whistling down. It was a um, whistle. He came down the bench and he was like talking to me about a play and I should jump the guy. And he was talking to me like I was a veteran. I was just staring at him going, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> you know, like, you're just nervous. And I was like, oh boy. And then, you know, he, he also had a respect for my, my opinion. He would come and be like, hey, do you want, to, want that guy or not? And I was like, I don't know. What do you want me to do? You know, and he's like, no, tell me what you want. If you want to jump him, I'll lay off. And, and we'd always have that conversation. So we opened the door to have a conversation where, you know, someone's not talking down in you, they're talking with you and trying to work out a, and solve a problem. And it made a biggest difference in the world. So for the rest of the year, you know, uh, I just felt like a part of the group and I'm sure Scotty felt the same way. And I'm sure Rafi felt the same way. And I'm sure Colin White, he was up and down, but came in at the end. And I'm sure he felt the same way. So 
it was the way they treated us that made us, you know, so tight. I never felt like a, a rookie whatsoever at any point during that season. Those, those personal relationships, those conversations that you were able to have right away. I mean, I'm guessing buy-in that, that just causes buy-in everyone across the roster when you can look a guy in the eye and have that type of conversation, right? Absolutely. I mean, for a guy like Scott Stevens, because when you came into training camp the years before, if I saw him walk in a room, I would try to avoid him because I'd be like, I don't know what to say to this guy. Like Marty was the same way. And a lot of rookies are like that. They're really not sure how to encounter. But then after you get to know him, I would say this for almost every hockey guy, doesn't matter whether it's Drew Doughty, you know, next year with my son, Tyler Madden, you know I mean? He's a good guy and he's going to, you know, do the right thing and whatever. It just, I think that's the thing about hockey where it's very accepting sport and they're very tight in those, those things. But I think it made the biggest difference between me having success individually. And I think they also knew that if I had success or I felt part of the team, it would help the team um, achieve their goals. What was it like when you took the cup back home, your day with the cup the first time? Um, it, it didn't seem real. Um, I don't know why, but uh, we took it to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, and then we did a little bit of a golf tournament with it with a bunch of the old buddies that I used to hang out with. Um, and then we, we had a little nightclub set up for it where we had some, you know, more drinks with it, so to speak. Uh, but it just it didn't seem real. I was in Toronto my hometown and we're parading around the Stanley cup and I was obviously a Toronto fan growing up. So, um, you know, it's been a while for, for the Leafs even back then. Um, so just to have it there and the look on people's faces when you have that Stanley cup, especially in Toronto, we're just like, what is going on? And it just didn't seem real until, you know, later on when you're getting the pictures back and you're talking about, you know, what you did with it, it just felt like, how did this happen? I know it's a dream, but how, how did this happen? And, and it happened rather quickly after college, you know, within three years, I was holding the Stanley cup. So it was, uh, the weird part was when you came back to work, you expected to win the cup. And, uh, you know, we, we went back to the finals and lost to Colorado, which was heartbreaking. So, and then we won again a year or two years later. So it, it, it was just, it was just weird. But as I got older and understood everything that went into it, because, as a rookie, I was like, wow, we're in the Stanley Cup finals. We just won the cup. Why is everybody saying it's so hard? You know, like, so to speak, in your head. Um, I know that sounds bad, but, you know, you come in, you win your first time, and you're like, it's a big deal. Let's keep doing this. Like, you know, but uh, as everybody knows, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. When Chris, you, that, that's a theme that a lot of the guys tell us. They get that first one, and they thought, hey, how many more I got to make room for on my shelf? And then as their <laughs> career goes on, very thankful that they were able, like you, John, to win a second, or it's your case, a third. And they realize it's, it is not easy, man. It is not easy. Yeah. And I, I, I had a question to follow up on that too, is not only did you win multiple cups, but you won them with a different roster, a different team. I'm wondering what that third cup was like for you with Chicago. It, it's not weird. It's going to be exciting. It's amazing. You won the cup again, but I mean, you weren't lifting it as a member of the New Jersey Devils, which had become habit for you pretty much. What was that third cup like? It, it was the third cup to me was the, um, and I, I don't mean to say this to Jersey fans, but where I was in my, my point in my career, I knew I only had a few more years left. And 
my, my son was 11 years old at the time. So he kind of got it. He understood it. He watched hockey every day. My daughter was eight at the time and she got it. And their involvement in the whole year leading up to winning the cup, the playoffs was like, he'd come home, he'd be waiting up and my wife'd be like, Oh, try to put him to bed, but he'd want to talk hockey. He'd want to talk like, Oh my God, you should have scored here. I'm like, I know I should have scored. (laughs) But like there was certain things. It just had a different feel to go to the dressing room though. The one thing I will say is that that room was tight, just like New Jersey. It had the same feel and had the same feel that we could win every game. And it took a little bit. It didn't happen in October. I think the turnaround game, honestly, when I look back on that year, I think we were down 5 nothing to Calgary. And I remember Joel Quinville coming in and saying some not nice things to us, but motivational, motivational at the time. And we went out and we won the game like 7-5. And I, from there on out, everybody started believing. And once they started believing, there was a lot of young guys like Patrick Kane, even though Jonathan Taze was our – Captain, he was still young, Duncan Key, Seabrook. And it just started snowballing, you know, Dustin Bufflin, Patrick Sharp, and you go on and on. And how many guys, when I say their names, it was the same. Like, a lot of these guys are going to be Hall of Famers and have great careers. They've won multiple cups. And they had the same feeling in the room and the same culture of, like, hey, it's, it's cup or bust. Um, but by midway through the year, we were just thinking about the Stanley Cup. What's it like to win a championship in an original six city and one until that group had success really didn't have much at all. They last one in 1961 and uh, then crowds dwindled. Games weren't for a while on home TV, et cetera, uh, or home games on TV. So what was it like to, to win for an original six franchise? Um, it, it was pretty special. I mean, I, I got, I got to be honest with you. The, the city of Chicago was just crazy. The organization was just over the top, whatever you need it. Um, but the city, the, the, the aftermath of winning the cup was, whew, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty remarkable. I mean, we got to go to a Cubbies game on the field and the parade. I'd never seen so many people downtown. We had the big double decker buses going. Um, it was something that I was just, I mean, I felt like I was just trying to take it all in at, at once. Cause I, in my head, I was like, that might have been the last one or last, last shot at it. So um, it was just a great feeling, especially, again, to have the kids old enough to be on the bus and kind of take it in and, and see, you know, it made me feel really good. I should have worn my Cubbies hat, Matty. Yeah, you should have. You should have <laughs> shown your love so John could have seen that. Boy, what a long road, I'm thinking. I mean, your career went on for another couple of years after that, uh, before it ended, ironically, against the Devils in the 2012 playoffs that seven-game series with Florida. But, you know, for a kid who grows up in North Toronto, and a lot of hockey dreams are born there, of course, but who you suited up for the Alliston Hornets. Is that true? Is that the earliest organized team? Anyway, I'm just thinking about the route that so many kids play at that level. What was it like playing for Alliston? And then, whatever, 20 years later, you've won your third cup. Yeah. Um, so I come right from the city, so I didn't really – I mean, it was Allison's and then, well – little more populated now they get the honda plant and there's other things going on but um we were busting the school um i was a new kid in town um and made the junior c team so it was fun i actually enjoyed it. i keep in touch with a lot of those guys still um when we when i go back home we, we, we get together and have a a pint or go play around a golf or get the families together and so on so it's uh i, I really enjoyed that time there and it was kind of the real first feel i had for a team where i 
where, cause all these kids grew up together and it's a little small town and they had that feel of like, Hey, we're a team. We weren't very good, but boy, did we think we were good. <laughs> well, that's half the battle. I think. Uh, hey, hey, I want, I do want to uh, jump ahead uh, a little bit, boy, there's so much we can touch upon and, you know, time will prevent us from doing all of it, but so you did end your playing career as a member of the Florida Panthers, lose that game seven, uh, Adam Henrique with the goal, and uh, Travis had scored earlier in overtime, and just what a heartbreaking series it was. Because you guys had a great record. You guys were just – the Florida Panthers had an excellent team that year, but just the heartbreak in seven. Did you know that that was going to be it, though? Did you have a feeling walking off the ice, shaking hands with uh, a team that you serve – so capably, uh, but they ousted you. Did you have a feeling like this is the last time I'm going to be skating? No, not at the time. Um, it was probably about a week later that it kind of hit me where, um, you know, th th this might be over. I believe, it, if I'm not mistaken, we, we had the lockout year that year, right? It was only a half season the following year. Mm -hmm. So, but what I do remember, obviously, I remember the game winning goal. I remember having a great opportunity on Marty to score in overtime. Um, but what I do remember is having a collision with uh, Kopecky, which, uh, you know, put my nose over here. And that was probably the, maybe a week later, I, I knew that was it for me. I was like, okay, this isn't, uh, this isn't something I'm, I'm capable of doing anymore. I think a lot of things, my mind was still there, but, you know, I was 38 years of age and the body was just starting to come apart a little bit where I was like getting frustrated because I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. Uh, on the ice so I was content with my career and I was content with hanging them up at the time um, and I really knew when it was over when I was more involved when I'd be on a road trip that year with Florida and I was more concerned about what was going on not that I wasn't never concerned before but I was more concerned about what was going on at home in terms of like hey did Ty score tonight how's Reese Gymnastics doing and so on and so forth my mind and my focus started to shift and I wasn't solely focused on on playing hockey so I kind of knew it maybe a week or two after that, that that was probably going to be it and uh, started looking for another career. How I, And you wanted to stick in hockey, obviously. I mean, you went to the Canadians as a scout, but then uh, quickly transitioned to coaching as an assistant. My question is how early in your playing career did you maybe start to think that after I'm done playing, I want to stick in the game and maybe I want to be a coach? Did you ever have that moment or is it more after you were done and you started to switch that focus? Yeah, I think it was more after I was done. I mean, I, I honestly just wanted to scout for a little bit and, you know, a scouting job, you pick your, you know, weekends or whenever you got to go, you can still be home and it's, it's got some freedom to it and some flexibility. And then, you know, Kevin Deneen was let go in, in Florida and Dale Talon called and said, Hey, we, we need you. And so I just stepped in. And, but once I got a little taste of it, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot that year that was, I wish I would have known some of the stuff while I was playing because I could have been even better defensively or maybe better offensively, just more detailed uh, in the game. And I know that's weird for me to say from someone who comes from the defensive side of the puck, but there's some things that you can pick up from video and I didn't watch enough video. I didn't, a uh, little regret there, I guess, didn't watch enough hockey, didn't uh, you know, watch enough of other players. Um, you know, especially late in my career, but I enjoyed it and uh, I'll get back into it here real soon. Uh, needed a year to recoup and needed to move and refocus uh, what was going on at home. 
as a guy who was on the receiving end as a young player in the league of those personal direct conversations with the players in the locker room as a coach, that's a big part of it. You have to create connections with your players. Uh, when you go about doing that as a coach, I mean, what do you like about that aspect of, of coaching, being able to kind of do what you did as a player or what you were on the receiving end, but now you're doing it as a coach? Yeah, I, I think it's a, you, know, you, you obviously have to have that connection. Coaching nowadays is a lot different than back in the day where you just got yelled at a lot. Now there's a lot of teaching going on. There's a lot of communication. Um, and, you know, you have to win them over and know that you're, they're on your, on your side. Um, but w- what I really got out of it was it's kind of like I'll use golf for an example. You go take a golf lesson and you're learning how to hit a, a draw. And you're working, you're working, you're working. Um, maybe a week, two, three weeks go by. You finally have that day, you're like, I got it. So it's kind of the same way with a kid or, or a young player or anybody for that matter. You're working on getting them to do certain things and certain habits, certain bring certain aspects to his games. And then all of a sudden you see it where it becomes just natural to him. And you're like, yes, it's almost like, it's almost like yourself getting it done, but you know, he got it done and you know that you've helped him. So I think that's a big thing for me. Peter Horacek was the man who took over for Kevin Denis. Peter, of course, a member of the Devils organization. And he came from the scouting side to come on the bench this year, too, for the New Jersey Devils. So you're, there, there's a Devils connection there. But there's also a Devils connection that I got to ask. And I, can, I was trying to visualize it today as I was doing some prep work for this interview. So you're an assistant coach, and Scotty Gomez is playing for the Florida Panthers. Now... There's got to be a couple of stories there, but what was that like? I love Gomer. I know you do, but he's nearing the end of his career. It's not a good situation. You guys aren't winning. You've been teammates. You know him. He knows you. What was that like? I don't. <laughs> good thing. I, I mean, I don't know how to say it, but you're, you're right. Gomer knew that he was near the end of his career, which I think helped out a lot, but. I think every once in a while, Gomer would look back on the bench and shake his head. And I'd be like, what's up? He's like, can't believe you're standing behind me. He goes, <laughs> you, you standing behind me just makes me feel old. And I was like, dude, I'm like five years older and you relaxed. You're good. You're good. And that was the one part. But it, the one part that really became difficult, well, for me anyways, was as an assistant coach, your, your job, part of your job is in morning skates. If someone's not playing, you have to give them a little bit of a, you know, skate where you you kind of wear them out and keep them going so they're in shape and so on and so forth so i remember uh pete horchuk saying hey gomer it was near the end of the year and they were playing all the young kids of course gomer's the old guy he's coming out of the lineup they're gonna play the kids we're not making the playoffs and uh so on and so forth so it wasn't necessarily due to this play it's just that time of you're old they're young that's the way it works so i remember skating over to gomer and i was like i gotta give you a skate he's like come on and i'm like yeah he's like give me a hard one i'm like I've got a job to do. He's like, come on, really? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we got to do it. So I made him skate and I'm standing there watching. I jumped in actually just because it was only him. And I want to say it was in Vancouver. So I, when he wasn't going, I would go and then give him a break and whatever like that. But it just felt really weird that I was skating Scott Gomez, who we won two cups together and were roommates on the road at some point. And as rookies, when we were down in uh, the Turtle Brook, uh, training we were roommates and we just know so much about each other usually you don't have that relationship between a, a player and a, and a coach so it was a little weird but we both got over it and uh you know just 
I think it, I think it may have helped Scotty get through the last 20 games of not, you know, maybe in and out of the lineup because he had someone to, to bounce things off of. Um, but uh, I don't know. You have to ask Scotty about that. I always forget about that, that, that part of, uh, you know, Scotty's career where I don't even know if that was his last year. Maybe I was his last coach. <laughs> he probably blamed me for ending his career. <laughs> well, I do remember visiting him in the, the dressing room and look, any player it's hard, right? I mean, you want to play, you think you still can, somebody's making a decision that for whatever reason, no. And it might be actually you who's made the decision, right? Your play is just not there. But in Florida, they were trying to get some young guys. And I, and I know it was difficult, but I just thought the relationship between you two was such that it had to be an interesting dynamic uh, as you went from friends and teammates to now, you know, one guy on one side of the fence, one guy on the other, all for the same goal. You, you want the best for the team, but just a different yeah, it was weird, especially for my first job. If I maybe had a couple of years under my belt, uh, I could have, you know, used my experience and just went up to him and said, hey, this is this the way it's going to be, fortunately, or whatever. But I really didn't know how to approach it with him. And I'm sure he was the same way. Like, this is awkward. And I'm like, yeah. Um, I, I really don't think it was a problem. I think both of us, you know, still have a chuckle about it. Um, uh, he always jokes with me. He goes, you're always trying to coach me when we play together. Now you're coaching me. So uh, yeah. <laughs> he has a pretty good needle. You've got a pretty good needle too. So I'm sure you went back and forth. I know you did so as teammates. It must've been interesting. And, and I mean that in the best way. I, I wasn't looking for any dirt or, or oh, no. fracture was, in the relationship. Yeah, it was a, it wasn't a very good time in, in Florida. We had a lot of young kids and we, we were struggling. So. So you think you're going to get back into coaching. We wish you the very best of luck in doing that. I will leave you with this. Wesky, if you've got a couple of follow-ups, have at it. But after all the time that you've worn that Devil's sweater and you are an important member of Devil's history, two cups, you know, we mentioned the Selkie trophy, et cetera. What does it all mean to you when that follows you and will for the rest of your life? Yes, you played for other teams and you did win for Chicago to take nothing away from that but most of your career was with the devils at a glorious time for the franchise. What, what is that like to have that part of your presence when you walk into a room? Um, I try not to think about it very much, to be honest with you. Um, I kind of like living here in Kentucky where hockey isn't a big deal. And, <laughs> you know, you just kind of flip the page and, you know, and move forward. And now I'm just, you know, Ty's dad, I'm Reese's dad. And I like it like that. Um, I like being, you know, not associated with hockey so much in terms of what I did. I don't know why. Um, but at the same time, when I went to the reunion, uh, I was in heaven. You know, I was like, yeah, we were Stanley Cup champs, and it's great. And it's something to reflect on. But, you know, if you, if you hold yourself there too long and you're like, hey, I'm telling everybody you want a cup or whatever, you never really turn the page to the next chapter of your life. And I think that's what I've done. You know, I, I want to be known as maybe a coach that wins a cup now. Um, that would be, that would be my goal is to win a cup as a, as a coach. Um, that would be something as well. And then for a while you'd be known as the guy who won a cup, who was a coach. And then you flip the page and you move on with life. But I think that's the big thing for people is to kind of, you know, remember the, remember the great times and remember everything that happened. But at the same time, you know, everybody's got to move forward. And, uh, some people can get hung up in that, you know, what they used to be. And I'm real happy of who I am right now. And maybe one day your son Tyler's going to lift that cup too. That'd be pretty great. That would be, you know, that's kind of the, the mindset I also have. It's not just about me. I'd love to see him have success in the NHL and, and him lift that cup. I think uh, 
you know, I, I think I'll be more excited for him than when I than for myself when I won a cup. Well, Maddie, I think he's got a good person to look up to, though. So, yeah, he's got uh, the experience. <laughs> exactly. Not only in in the NHL, but won a college championship as well. And hey, someday you'll get that coaching opportunity, hopefully soon after you've taken this time off to move and get settled into a new place, and you get back into the game and. Someday they'll be handing it to you once again. It'll just be you'll be in a jacket and tie instead as you lift that cup <laughs> over your head. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, it's been brilliant. Glad that we could connect here. Uh, best of luck to you and uh, Tyler and Reese and your wife, Lauren, uh, in your new home, your old Kentucky home. And we look forward to seeing you at The Rock when we can get together sometime soon. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, I'd love to come back. You know, that second championship, and boy, it was good to hear John and hear him recount the stories. And I'm looking forward to him back in the game because he had success as a coach. Uh, but I'm looking forward to him being back in the game as a coach. It, it, it clearly is something he wants to do. But when I think about those Devils teams, it's easy to think about the Hall of Famers and the numbers that are retired. And those five numbers, you know, hang over the rank and Scott Stevens and Scott Niedermeyer, Marty Brodeur in the hall of fame. Lou Lamorello is in the hall of fame, but the depth of that team, when I think about who could roll out there, a guy like John Madden who made a living stopping you from scoring could score four goals in a game. And Jay Pandolfo could get a goal. And Bobby Holik certainly scored goals. And Scotty Gomez and Brian Rafalski was such a sublime defenseman came out of nowhere from Finland. Nobody knew anything really about him. And here he is on the devil's doorstep and becomes an important cog. That's what I think about. Yeah, I think about the stars and the greatness, but I think about the depth and how very, very good those players were too. Yeah, and I also think, you know, I think it's a lazy narrative to label those those teams as 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 boring or, you know, just to think of only the trap. They had some offensive firepower. Those teams could score. They were just great teams. And John was a big part, part of that. He was an integral part of that. I like speaking with him about the evolution of his game because back when he first started playing hockey, we talked about it. offensive juggernaut and that followed him all the way through. Uh, college and then early on into his pro career he thought you know I'm just going to keep lighting the lamp and I, I I find it I always find it interesting when a player flips a switch in their career and they find that role for them that gives them long-term success and I think if he hadn't have had if he didn't have that attitude I'm gonna take that on a hundred percent he might not have played it as long because the game changes and he found his fit and he wrote it and he was great and he was a great player and he was a great fit for the devils and he won multiple cups. And uh, I, I love that he evolved his game and he stuck with it. But like you said, he always had that offensive side to him as well. Even though he was committed to the defensive side of hockey, he could hit you. He could score multiple game, goals in the game as well. He could, and that was a brilliant game against Pittsburgh when he and Randy McKay each scored four goals in a Devils 9 nothing victory. But he prided himself on those shorthanded goals. He was a weapon. He and Jay Pandolfo were weapons, John in particular scoring the shorthanded goals. It was a knack. His speed, his vision, his opportunism all resulted in a team that should have the confidence because they have a man advantage always a little wary. It, they weren't just facing Marty Brodeur and a stout defense. They had to worry about being scored upon 
and that happened a lot. So uh, J J John Madden was just so much fun, and he was mature enough to see that that's how he was going to have to make it in the National Hockey League. There's an old saying, you're young enough, you may not have heard it, Chris, but, and John wasn't a crusher in the true sense, like a Ken Danico, but there's a saying that when a crusher starts to play like a rusher, he soon turns into an usher. Okay. So, <laughs> so you got to know what, what your role is. And uh, John was told early, he accepted it and went with it. And uh, a career that most people would sign up for, sir. Yeah, and Maddie, I, I think helping him out, and we talked about it with him, is just the leaders in this locker room uh, of the of those Devils teams. They incited buy-in from everyone and made him feel welcome right from the start. He talked about it as a rookie; he felt very welcome. And midway through his rookie season, he didn't feel like a rookie anymore. And Scott Stevens was having one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. All of that allows you to buy in. And then you go, I want to win with this team. I'll do whatever the heck they want for me. And he did that. And it's, it's great talking with guys like that because those are the guys that, you know, you wish you had on more of on your roster today. You, you wish that every team had those types of guys because uh, those are the types of guys you can win with. It is part of why the Devils did do that winning. And uh, we look forward to the day when Tyler Madden has his <laughs> name on a Stanley Cup and who knows right now it's it's with the LA Kings but maybe someday his career will take him eastward and that that would be pretty cool indeed at any rate on that note we'll wrap things up of uh, speak of the devils for Chris Westcott thanks so much for spending time with us it was a blast good to uh, spend time with you as always and special thanks to John Madden for giving us his time thank you as always devils fans for your company it's a pleasure to sit in this seat until the next time be safe be well and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.